0: So would you turn with me to uh, John chapter 13, it's on page 1067 in your pew Bibles. And so for those of you that might not have been here last week, I think it might help if we had a quick introduction to John 13. So Jesus has just washed the feet of all of his disciples and we're going to enter into this, this Passover feast where Jesus is in the upper room, it's the Last Supper, and he's preparing his disciples for the cross. He's preparing them for what's going to come next. The reason that Jesus washed their feet was to show, is a foreshadowing to show of the, the, clean, the cleansing that Jesus would do on the cross for all the disciples and for all of those who believe. So as we enter in to this passage, we need to, to know even the setting of what's going on. Um, so in this time when people were eating a special feast like this, they would recline, and what that means is they would have, you know, they would be laying down, they would have their elbow out and be leaning and having their feet kicked back, and so I think it's something that we should all do, like just eat on our beds all the time, and I think that would just be great, um, but so just enter in with this, with this setting, see that they're all kicked back, they're leaning on, on their left elbow. And, um, you know, we're going to see what Jesus says. And so the tone of this, of this passage is, is going to shift a couple times, and, and we'll see that. So let's read John 13, verse 18. Jesus says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. I tell you the truth, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you're about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. And so this morning, we're going to focus on three Three big things. We're going to see the contrast between the true disciples and Judas. We're going to see the rejection and betrayal of Christ. And then we're going to see the glory of the cross of Christ. So let's look at verse 18 to see this first point. The contrast of the true disciples and Judas. And so honestly, we can actually look look in uh, chapter 13 a little bit further up. We can look at verse 2. Let's look there real quick. Verse 2, it says, this is at the start of the meal. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Go down in verse 10. This is, after, this is during Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Jesus answered in verse 10, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, And that was why he said not everyone was clean. So what we see here, even even before Jesus is saying anything, we see a contrast of true disciples who are clean and Judas who's unclean. Okay. And so when Jesus says in verse 18, he says, I'm not referring to all of you, it's to show this contrast, to show that Judas is the one who's unclean, who will betray him, and the disciples are clean, who are following him and believing on him. So, it's to distinguish the the separation between the two. So, let's look further in verse 18. We're going to see even more of this contrast. He continues, he says, I know those I have chosen. And so, at this point, you might be thinking, well, of course, you know, I've chosen those, you know, of my true disciples, and Judas is not one of them. I mean, it's sort of natural to think, because Judas is unclean, the other disciples are clean. So, if Jesus is saying, I know those I've chosen, you have the, the question, well, of course, Judas is not clean. He's not chosen, right? Well, let's, let's take a, a quick second to do a little word study on chosen, the way that John uses this word chosen. So let's go to, to John chapter 6 very quickly. So John chapter 6. This is um, the feeding of the 5,000. And if you're familiar with the story, Jesus says, to the crowds, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And when the, the large crowd of, of thousands of people hear this, many of his disciples leave. They no longer follow Jesus. And so let's look at verse 68. Verse 68, this is um, Jesus asked them, actually in verse 67, Jesus asked the 12, Do you want to leave? And look at their response in verse 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And so Simon Peter, in this this instance, is speaking for all of the disciples. And he says, where else are we to go? We know who you are. You have the words of eternal life. You're the Holy One of God. And look at what Jesus' response is. Verse 70, it says, Then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So implicit in this is, is huge, huge things for us. So Judas is one of the twelve. Judas is chosen. That's what this verse is saying. That Judas is chosen, but he's he's a devil. So what, what are we to do with this? This is, this is challenging in, in some ways because what we see here is that, that Judas is chosen. And so Jesus chooses all. Jesus chooses some for life and some for death. And so this is encouraging for us to dwell on. Let's, let's go further in John. Let's go to John 15, where we're going to go in, a, in, a, in the next couple months. John 15, starting in verse 16. trying to figure out what this word chose means, doing a quick word study. So look, John fifteen sixteen, Jesus says, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. So do you see that there? You did not choose me, but I chose you? This is so encouraging for us who believe. Jesus Christ is sovereign over our salvation, every aspect of it, even the beginning of it. Jesus is the one that chooses us and calls us and drags us to him. So when in John 13, if we want to go back there, when in John 13 Jesus says, I know whom I have chosen, let that encourage your heart, encourage your soul. If you believe in Christ, you've been chosen by God to know Jesus, to enjoy His presence forever, and to follow Him. This is, such, this is such an encouraging thing for us, that Jesus is sovereign over everything, even our heart, even our salvation. And so let's keep going in this. So the reason that Jesus chooses all the twelve is in verse 18, if we look there. The reason that He chose them is to fulfill this scripture. In verse 18, He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. So the reason that Jesus chose Judas was to fulfill this scripture. Now where does this come from? Let's go to Psalm 41, is where this verse comes from. Psalm 41 is on page uh, 556. So the author of this psalm is King David. And Jesus is quoting this verse from this psalm. So King David, is he serves as a type. He serves as a model of of what Christ is to come, of of the promised Messiah. And so David is, is a sinful man, but he's a man after God's own heart. And we can look throughout the whole Old Testament to see the different types and models and foreshadowings of Christ. Because David is an eternal king. He was a shepherd who's now a king. And so David, we'll see in this psalm, he's, he's a king who's rejected, he's betrayed, he's, he's suffering weakness, he's being mocked. He's, he's also the one who wrote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the connections to Christ, because that's what Christ says on the cross, the connections to Christ are, are many. And we'll see that in this verse. So David is being mocked, by his enemies. He's undergoing a life threatening illness in Psalm 41. And so, as we read these words, they're filled with pain and with suffering. So, let's start in verse 5 of Psalm 41. He writes, My enemy saved me in malice. When will he die and his name perish? Whenever one comes to see me, he speaks falsely. While his heart gathers slander, then he goes out and spreads it abroad. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, A vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. Even my close friend, whom I trusted, he who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me. Raise me up that I may repay them. I know that you are pleased with me, for my enemy does not triumph over me. In my integrity you uphold me and set me in your presence forever. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. And so David is being mocked by his enemies. He's enduring great suffering, hardship, trials. And as we read verse 9, even a close friend rejects him and betrays him. And so in that time, if, if you're eating with the king, it's showing your allegiance to them. It's showing your loyalty to them. It's like your pledge of allegiance to that king. And so when David says that his enemy has shared bread, it shows that this is not, this is not someone that's a, a, an acquaintance. This is someone who's a very close, close friend. And that breach of loyalty, when it happens, it hurts so much worse. We've all been betrayed, I'm sure, at some point in our lives. And it hurts. It hurts bad. And so the ultimate fulfillment of David's words here come in John 13, 18. If you want to turn back there, John 13, 18 is quoting this psalm. And so Judas is the one, who, who he's the close friend who's going to betray the Son of God, the King of the universe. And so let that, let that hit us for a second. Judas is the one who's going to betray Christ with a kiss. And so the lifting up of the heel that, that David talks about and that Jesus quotes, how do we understand that? Is it like, is it like a kick to the face when Jesus is washing his feet? I don't, I don't think so. Um, in, in this context, the lifting up of the heel is more like like scheming and a deliberate, devised plan for betrayal. So Jesus is saying Judas is going to deliberately betray him and lift up his heel against him. And so think about an example of this. I mean, I think we've all taken U.S. history at some point. We can think of maybe one of the greatest betrayals in in history is with Benedict Arnold. If you're familiar with that story, he's... He's an officer in the Continental Army, and, uh, you know, he he gains acclaim by leading leading many victories in battle. And, uh, you know, over time, some other officers begin to take credit for his work. Then he begins to find he's having financial issues. And so when the Redcoats come to him and say, will you betray Betray the Continental Army and and get paid and and have have a good life in England, he does it. And he, he tries to offer up Fort uh, West Point that he was in, in control of. And when the, the plot got found out, he fled and left. And now he's known by all of us, especially in Massachusetts, by all of us familiar with the, the Revolutionary War of, of a traitor, of betraying his, his own, of, of being so concerned about money and so focused on money that he would betray his own loyalties to his country. And so what we see here is the betrayal of Judas is going to prove to be infinitely worse than that of Benedict Arnold. And so let's look at verse 19. None of, the encouraging part of this whole story is none of this is a surprise to Jesus. He knows what's coming. He knows that it's, it's going to happen. And he's still calm and unafraid with the cross looming just hours away. Let's look at verse 19. It says, I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. And so Jesus is the true shepherd. You see what he's doing here? He's telling his disciples, look, I'm about to be betrayed. I'm about to be killed and crucified. And he's saying, don't be afraid. I'm here with you. I'm I'm telling you this so that you would believe, so that you would follow me. And so what's really interesting here is that even even the scheming of Judas, the scheming of of an evil man, serves the purposes of Jesus Christ going to the cross. And that's why this is so incredible to see, that even, even something so heinous and so evil can accomplish The directed will of Jesus Christ and of God Almighty. And so that's what we see in verse 9. The betrayal is is going to cause the believers to the, the disciples to believe and to follow Christ. And so the reason that Jesus tells them this betrayal is going to happen is so that they believe. And so as we think about this, Jesus is telling them, Look, this evil thing is going to happen so that you would believe. How much more do you think that applies to us? You know, we can think about so many different things that happen to us in our lives. I'm sure there's thousands of stories that you could all tell. Each one of those is meant for you to look back on your life and say, yeah, that caused me to believe more in my Savior Jesus Christ. We can even look on, look on suffering. What about when suffering happens? It's one of the hardest human questions, honestly. What happens when suffering comes? You know, I was talking to a church member who's, who's suffering physically. You know, he's dealing with cancer and some other things. And he was telling me, look, the, you know, Christ is my hope. That's who I rest in. That's who I treasure. So when suffering happens, I just have to believe, that's, that's all that we can do. And what you see there is, is, is a man that's, that's believing in Christ, and now in his suffering, he's serving others. He's caring for others to follow Christ and, and helping them to know Christ more. You see that he's had to change his perspective, that he's not so focused on his own suffering, but he's focused on the glory of God so that he would believe. And this man is, is rejoicing in his suffering, because he knows that Christ's love will be poured out in him during his suffering. Now what, well, what about something else? How about losing my job? If you lose your job, you're unemployed, facing financial issues. You, know, you have no money, you have no prospects. You're just struggling, you're striving. You're striving to get somewhere. And you just can't ever get there. Here's how Jesus helps to believe. We have to change our perspective again. We have to look at Christ. Not as as a way to to get us stuff, but as to satisfy us for who he is and for what he's done. And so the more the more that you seek Christ, the more that your heart will be satisfied. Because even when you get that job, even when you get that money, it doesn't satisfy like Christ. It never will. And so what what are we resting in? Are we resting in, in our physical health? in our beauty, in our possessions, in our religion. And we're going through Ecclesiastes um, in our fall retreat for the youth and Solomon makes it so clear. He says, look, all of this earthly stuff is meaningless. It's a striving after wind. Striving after wind. So what are we resting in? As we look at this verse, what is Jesus telling them to rest in? Telling them to rest in belief. Belief in God. And who is is Jesus telling them to believe in? Let's look at verse 18 again. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am he. And so Jesus is preparing them for the cross. He's preparing them to see their, their teacher, their Lord, their rabbi, be crucified. Be mocked, be rejected, be betrayed, be beaten. And what is he telling them to believe in? He's telling them to believe in the great I am. He's telling them to believe in, in the one who, who is who he is. It makes us think of Exodus 3 when God comes to Moses in the burning bush and says, I am what I am. That's power. That's who he is. That's the name of God. I am has sent you. It makes us think of other times in scripture where the Lord speaks. And he says, I the Lord. The first and the last. I am he. This is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, disciples, when this happens, don't don't be fearful. But believe in the great I am. Believe in the God of all creation. Believe in the God who has chosen you. And that changes our perspective. It changes us from thinking about ourselves all the time to thinking about God all the time. Because if we're honest, and if I'm honest, I'm an awful God. I'm just awful. I can barely tie my own shoes. That's why I leave them tied. (laughs) But God is so much greater than we can ever imagine. He's so much greater than we can think. And he's telling, to, he's telling the disciples in this moment, believe in me. Believe. Believe in me. And there's, I don't know what else I can tell you. Believe in Christ. Whatever you're going through, believe in Christ. Believe in him. Follow him. Trust him. He's glorious. He's awesome. And so look at what he keeps he keeps saying to them. He keeps going. Starting in verse 20, he says, I tell you the truth. Whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. And whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And so Jesus here makes an even more stunning claim. He's just said, I am He, I am the eternal God of the universe. And now look at what he's saying. He's saying, Whoever accepts the Son accepts the one who sent him. So if you accept Christ, you accept God the Father. And what we see here is we're getting a little glimpse into the Trinity. We're getting a glimpse into the intimate relationship of God. God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. And how that all works. And so this verse, it it continues to paint the contrast. is what we'll see of the true disciples and of Judas. Because what we see here is that true disciples, in verse 20, is what we see is they're sent out. They're sent out for a mission. So Jesus is telling the disciples, look, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die. But you're going to go on mission. This This connects us to verse 16 in chapter 13. Let's read it. Verse 16 in chapter 13, it says, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. So we see God sending Christ. We see Jesus then sending the disciples out in mission. And this, this verse is such a great preparation for our missions conference. You know, why, why do we have missions? Because Jesus is the one who's sending people all over the world. And this includes you and I. We're to go beyond mission. Would it be on mission when we're working in Rockland? When we're going to school in Weymouth? Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, with family, with friends, with coworkers, we're on mission. And we can trust, we can trust in Christ. We can trust that whoever accepts Christ will accept the one who's sending him. And we can trust in Jesus. So that leaves us with, with boldness. We don't have to be concerned about what people think. It doesn't matter because we're so focused on, on being God-centered, not on people-centered. So we can, be, we can be trusting in Christ and who he is and what he's done. You know, we don't know, we don't know who's chosen. So we need to tell everyone. This, this should cause us to, to follow him more and believe on him more. And so, to sort of conclude this point, it's the marker and indication of a true disciple is this. A true disciple believes. And then what we see here is the marker of a false disciple is betrayal. So belief and betrayal is what we'll see. And we see that in point two is is the rejection and betrayal of Christ. Let's look at verse 21. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to to betray me. And so, I I sort of, I sort of study, study people sometimes. I know that might sound weird. Um, But let me me just give an example. So, I, I teach at youth group. Okay? And, you know, I'll teach for like maybe 25 to 30 minutes. And sure enough, every time I'm done teaching, regardless of whatever the message is, all the kids, they get up and just start talking. Okay? And, it's really interesting how how that happens, how that dynamic happens. And then, like, for example, here, like, you know, I'll get done preaching, we'll get done singing, and everyone's just going to go talk, right? I mean, sure enough, that's what everyone's going to do. So as we try and enter into the room here of what's going on with Jesus and the disciples, Jesus just finishes his thought in verse 20, okay? And sort of, I, I picture this. I picture Jesus ending this saying, Um, You know, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. I sort of picture the disciples, you know, stopping and listening, of course, but then just talking to one another after this. And so, as we look at verse twenty, Jesus is is troubled in spirit. He's he's you know anxious about what's going to happen. And then he, I, I I sort of envision him like speaking loudly over the people who are talking, over the disciples' chatter. And he says, he says, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. I mean, I I, I wish I were here to I, w- I wish I were there to hear what he was saying and how he said it. Because I imagine he's, he is troubled. I mean, that's what John says. And he cries out, one of you is going to betray me. One of the twelve. One of the disciples. One of you in this room is going to betray me. And so the tone of this whole feast is going to change. The tone is totally shifting. It went from from Jesus performing this incredible act of service and humility and washing the disciples' feet into a tense situation where the disciples, they don't know what to do with it. And so that's what we see in verse 21. Let's look at verse 22, the disciples' response. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. And, I mean, this this is really, really scary for us to think about. You know, one of the disciples is the one who betrayed Christ. And so throughout this whole time, the disciples have sort of gotten tiny little glimpses of what's going to come. You know, Jesus has said, Okay, I'm going to die and be betrayed and and uh, you know suffer, but they, nothing like this has ever happened before, so they they don't know what to do with it. But now in this moment, Jesus is saying he's saying one of you is going to betray me, and they must be thinking like these the words of Jesus brought the room to a hush. They must be thinking, what is he talking about? One of us. We're the ones who said he's the Holy One of God. We have nowhere else to go. We're following him. We're believing in him. One of us? What? One of us is going to betray Christ? In Matthew's account of, of, this, of this story, he writes that, that each of the disciples, one at a time, went around the whole room and said, Is, is I Lord? Lord? Is it I? You sort of picture them one at a time saying this. And then when Judas says it, this is a marker, another contrast of true disciples and Judas. Judas says, is it I, Rabbi? You see that difference. You see the other disciples are saying that Jesus is their Lord and Judas is calling him Rabbi, a mere teacher. And so this changes the whole whole, you know, aspect of the room. It changes the whole tone. It cuts him to the heart. Let's look at verse 23, 24. 23 it says, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. And so, even Peter, even loud mouth Peter, Doesn't say something. He simply nods. Just ask him. Ask him which one he means. Who who is he talking about? And so he motions to to John, the author of this book. The disciple whom Jesus loved is John. And John leans back and asks him, is what we'll see in verse 25. So leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. And so this disciple leans back against Jesus, and he asks, who is it? And as we, as we think about, as we remember what the setting of this is, John is leaning back against Jesus. He's to the right of Jesus, a place of distinction at the special feast, and he leans back as he's laying and asks Jesus, who is it? And, you know, we can, we can sort of infer that, that Jesus said this to John quietly because there's confusion after in the upcoming verses as to who, who Jesus is talking about. So Jesus says this quietly so the other disciples don't hear. But for us, you know, we, we can read the words and we know who he's talking about. It's Judas. Judas is the one that's going to betray Christ. He's the one who, who will reject him and bring him to the cross. And this is, this is really, really powerful. This is scary stuff. Judas has been with Jesus for three years. Judas is one of the, one who's, one of the ones who left everything to follow him. Three years following a Messiah around You know, in in Luke 10, Jesus sends out the disciples to go do to missions, to go cast out demons, to heal sick, and to proclaim the kingdom of God is here. And Judas was one of those. Judas is one of the ones who who cast out demons, who healed sicknesses. You know, in Luke 10, Jesus Jesus says that when, when the disciples came back, they came back with joy. And what did they say? They said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And what's Jesus' response? What does he say? He says, don't rejoice that the Spirit submit to you, but rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And so what he's, he's telling, the people, telling the disciples is, look, there's more power in your salvation then there is in you casting out that demon. A more, mirac- a more miraculous sign is your name being written in heaven than you healing that person who was sick. And this makes total sense for us. Because external signs don't produce internal heart change. And so since Judas is the betrayer, it's obvious for us to see that his name is not written in heaven. You know elsewhere Jesus says it would have been better for Judas not to even been born. So he was around Jesus but he never believed. He never truly followed. And you know the example of Judas is really sobering for us. It really is. You know he was he was the one who was always there with Christ. He heard the voice of Jesus. He he saw Christ do all of these miracles. He had incredible access to the Son of God. He was even trusted to hold the money bag for the disciples. He's at the Last Supper dipping bread with Christ. And he's the betrayer. It's despicable to sin. Judas is the one who will reject Christ he used his access to Jesus to deliver him up for 30 pieces of silver. Maybe a couple hundred bucks. And you know, for us today, we might have this, have this sense, you know, well, if, if I only saw Jesus, it would be so much easier to believe. And Judas's example says to us, that might not be true. So for us, This is very sobering. It's very scary. We can be around Jesus. We can be around people in the church and not know him. Judas did the miraculous signs and his heart was full of sin and greed. God sees all things. He knows my heart. He knows your heart. He knows our thoughts. He knows our motives. He knows who we are. The Lord knows those who's are his. And so, as we look at the example of Judas, my prayer this week, because I've been dealing with this all week, my prayer has been that as you check your heart, please check your heart. See if there's love for the Savior in it. That's been my prayer. That as you look upon your heart, that you see that there's joy in Jesus Christ. That the evidences of your belief are True that you can look on your heart and say, no, I really believe. I really believe in who he is and what he's done. And so it's, it's incredible to think that as we look at this passage, that we see the love of our Savior. You know, we just read last week in John 13 that Jesus washed the disciples' feet, all of them. Jesus washed even Judas's feet, the one who would betray him we see that the grace, the mercy, and the love of our Savior are overwhelming. It's incredible. Jesus knows that Judas is going to betray him, and he still loved him till the end. And so look at verse 27. Verse 27, it says, And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered him. So the last piece of Jesus' loving Judas is giving him a piece of bread which signified friendship at a special feast like this. And what does Judas do? He takes it and uses it as a fuel to reject Christ. It only hardens his resolve. The sin, the sin is despicable. It's awful. And so when Judas takes the bread, Satan enters him. And so this this week, I've I've tried to get in the mind of Judas, get in the mind of of Satan as to what's going on, as to what's happening. It's a very scary place to be. And uh, so I I asked this question as I was reading it. I'm like, "Well, how does does Satan enter him? Like, how is that possible? And so this is what what I think is happening. Satan enters into Judas and has power over Judas because of his sinful desires. Satan will use sin for his own gain and for his own means. Satan has power where those desires have a hold. Judas loved money, and he covered it with a fake, phony, external relationship with Christ. That's how Satan had power over Judas. And so when, when Satan got the opportunity to enter into Judas, he did. Because Judas was scheming to sell out Christ for those 30 pieces of silver. So it brought me to my next question. Well, then why does Satan enter into Judas? Why, what is Satan trying to do here? You know, what's, what's happening? And in short, Satan is bringing about his own destruction by entering Judas. And, and I'll tell you why in a minute. So for, the, for pretty much all of, all of Jesus' ministry... Satan has been opposing him. You know, when Jesus Jesus goes, uh, you know, first initiates his ministry, the first thing that happens, he's tempted by Satan. Satan is trying, trying to to get a hold of Christ. Because if, if Satan can get a hold of Christ and have Christ dwell on what's earthly, he'll never set up his eternal kingdom. So, throughout all of Jesus' ministry, like, have you ever wondered why so many demons were brought to Jesus? It's because Satan is opposing Christ at every moment he can. And every time, every time, Christ casts them out, showing his power over Satan and his power over all things. And so as we look, as we look upon this, we're trying to figure out what Satan is trying to do. And every time Satan comes, he's trying to keep, keep Jesus from the cross. Every time. You know, if you remember when Jesus predicts you know, his rejection and betrayal and murder at the hands of of the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 16, and Peter takes him aside, Loudmouth Peter, goes again, takes him aside and says, Lord, it's not going to happen. It won't happen to you. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have the things of God on your mind, but you have the things of the world. So in that moment what we see happening is, is Jesus is calling Peter Satan because Peter is doing something Satan does. Peter's trying to keep Jesus from the cross. And so Satan doesn't want Christ crucified. But what we see here, we see here is Satan bringing about his own undoing. Because as Satan enters into Judas, is going to set in motion the cross. And so we see here that Satan is the father of lies. He's insane. He's totally rational. This is going to destroy him. So when Satan enters into Judas, he's bringing about his eternal destruction. And so it sets in motion the greatest sin of all time, the murder of Jesus Christ. And so we've seen the contrast of the, two, of the true disciples and Judas. And we've seen the rejection and betrayal of Christ. And so now we'll see the glory of the death of Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 30. Verse 30 it says, As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And so this verse ends sort of cryptically, it ends with, And it was night. And so there's, there's two ways that we can look at this. It's night because the heart of Judas is full of darkness. It's full of sin. It's also night because it's night. <laughs> and this is, this is late. You know, the Passover feast started late. And so it's, it's night. And then if you think about it on an, even, on an even deeper level, this is the last night of the life of Christ. Christ. You know, as we, as we keep going through John, John 14, 15, 16, and 17, all occur in the upper room, all occur on Jesus' last night. So Judas is going to leave, and Jesus is going to take that time in those chapters to care for, to shepherd, and to encourage his true disciples. And so this, this one phrase, and it was night, has, has such huge implications for us. It's the last night of the life of Christ. And darkness is going to be over the whole land. You know, elsewhere Jesus says that this is the power of the hour of darkness. When Christ dies. And what we see here is is that Christ will be crucified. And at that moment, it's the greatest display of God's glory. Like that song we were singing. I I was floored when I saw that one verse. It said, and the glory of God shines through the light, the night, and has power over the night. This is this is what the gospel is. The glory of God shines in the darkness. The glory of God comes on those who don't believe. The glory of God comes so that we would believe and see our Savior. And so the underlying question that you might have here is, Well, why didn't God do anything? Why did God bring about his destruction? killing his own son and he did do something that's the answer he brought it about jesus knew what was happening this is why christ came christ came to die for the sins of the earth the world to live the life we couldn't and to die the death we should this is his mission this is why he's here and god is sovereign over it and it shows god's glory that God will save his people by grace through Christ. And so when Christ is rejected, arrested, beaten, and crucified, it's no surprise. Jesus willingly lets down his life. In a sense, when Jesus gives the bread to Judas, he's almost offering up his life to be crucified because he knows that's going to set in motion his death. And the brutal death that it was. And this is the plan of God. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Jesus was numbered with the transgressors because he bore the sins of many so that he would intercess and make intercession for the people so that we would be accounted righteous. This is our Savior. This is glorious. This is what he's done. And this is where darkness comes in. Darkness comes in on the cross of Christ. Our sin is darkness. And on the cross, all of our sin, past, present, and future, are poured onto Christ. He bore our sins in our place. And in that moment when Christ has the sins of the world, the wrath of God is on Christ punishing Christ in judgment because of our sin, my sin, your sin. And this is where we see the glory of God manifested. He's the serpent on the stick. We can look to Christ because he's got power over everything. Let's go to one more one more place very quickly. Let's go to Colossians 2. Colossians 2 starting in verse 13. Colossians 2 is on page 1166 in your pew Bibles. What we're going to see here is that Jesus has power over everything. And look at what it says, starting in verse 13. It says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus has power over all things. He's destroyed Satan, he's destroyed death. He's worthy of all of our praise, all of our worship. He's died for our sins. He rose again on the third day. And we are saved. We are free. We are forgiven by the grace of God. We are in Christ. Your identity is no longer in what you do, but rather in whose you are. You're a believer. You're a follower of Christ. You belong to Christ. And this changes everything. It changes our vertical relationship with God. We have an intercessor, a mediator between us and God. And it changes our horizontal relationships. We can forgive like Christ has forgiven. We can love like Christ loves. All of our relationships are changed marriages, friendships, parenting, co-workers, family. If you're in school, other students. This is what the cross does. It changes us from the inside out. And the cross is where God is most glorified and shows his power over all things. And so we rejoice. And so we praise God for who he is and for what he's done. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is alive. Death cannot touch him. And he's kept a place for us who believe. So put your faith in Christ today if you haven't done that before. He's infinitely glorious by his death. And he's sovereign over all things. And he's alive. Our Savior's alive. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that Satan is a toothless enemy, that the cross of Christ has defeated him. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are sovereign over all things. You've taken on all of our sins. And you've satisfied the wrath of God in our place. We thank you that we are free. We have unity with Christ. We thank you for the Holy Spirit which causes us to rejoice and to praise your great name. Lord Jesus, we love you. Help us to love you more in every aspect of our lives. We pray that you would be glorified and that you would cause us to believe in all of who you are. It's for your beautiful name we pray. Amen.